Hello and welcome to the 250, your fortnightly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. And sometimes, when we've released either seven or eight episodes in a single weekend, discussing the Star Trek franchise, because that's something we feel comfortable talking about off the top of our heads. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I feel fine, Darren. How how do you feel? <laughs> you, I can't really raise an eyebrow on, on my... It doesn't really work in an audio medium. You need to bring your eyebrow to the, <laughs> to the microphone mic and just, hear and just ASMR it up yeah. and down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, heads up for listeners, uh, there will be very little editing happening this week. This is going straight from the microphone into your ears because I am currently in Australia and this is desperately going into fill a gap in the it's release schedule. listener's schedules. fault. They, they played. <laughs> they, <laughs> like, they hit play. That was their fault. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so yes, we are talking about Star Trek for The Voyage Home, directed by Leonard Nimoy, the fourth film in the Star Trek franchise, rounding out the Genesis trilogy. And before we begin, Andrew, do you remember the first time that you saw Star Trek for The Voyage Home? Yeah, yeah, I think I do. It would have been in order, I would say, um, following uh, The Search for Spock. Yeah, yeah I, I think it, I would have had the same experience. Yeah, it would and and it would have been at some point between like 1994 and 1998. Again, those peak Star Trek years you mentioned where <laughs> yeah. Star Trek seemed to be everywhere and was inescapable. And again, arguably this is the movie that really gave us peak Star Trek. Uh we mentioned when we talked about the Before Wrath- that for me it was MacGyver. <laughs> really? <laughs> was the big thing. Really? Yeah. Okay. I remember one time in maybe 92 or 93 my brother got grounded and wasn't allowed to watch the second part of the um uh, macgyver when he goes back in time a geranium pot falls on his head and he's in the the court of arthur okay so very similar to the movie that we're talking about today a similar landmark yeah. event moment time the the time travel episode <laughs> of 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 macgyver well i mean i but mean they they had the they had that thing in common um yeah well i mean we'll, we'll maybe talk a little bit about this because again this is we talked a little bit about how when you get to the wrath of khan the auto- i feel like it's the premise of the movie we, we yes. can probably reveal that right that it does involve time travel it's kind of in the poster and kind of arguably like the most successful and ubiquitous Star Trek movie ever made. I don't think it's a spoiler to say this is the one where they go back in time. Uh, two, as my Star Trek VHS commercial, which played in Sesame. I don't think we can spoil anything for the intended audience that is of fair. this particular podcast. <laughs> that is fair. <laughs> this episode. <laughs> no, I think of the podcast generally. Um, I like what I sometimes, what, what I, um, I'm, um, I don't think it'll be in the in the recommendation section, but it's definitely something that I've been in, 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 um, that I do from time to time. Is I will look up a person and then listen to every time they've been on a podcast or any time a podcast have spoken about them. So I'll be li- listening to kind of various interviews with Tom Stoppard on on various kind of like radio shows and. Um, um, and there then podcasts an where they just talk though, about there? them yeah but like you if you if you search on, on spotify. spotify okay like say if you search on 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 um our stitcher or any of the, <laughs> any of the other yeah, apps yeah. which we are not but officially in, affiliated in, with in in this case it was like tom stoppard i looked him up 
and I like you you'll 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 do that uh, or sorry I will do that sometimes say with like Paul Rust or Neil Gamble and you'll find them on like five different podcasts and then listen to them um on that this is possibly like the second or third podcast that a Star Trek aficionado has listened to about <laughs> Star Trek Star Trek for the voyage home. Yeah, I was about to say that that is how podcasting generally works. That's how you attract new listeners. You just this assume how, how somebody types the them. name of a guest, yeah, or a or a subject you're talking about yeah. into Spotify and then you have them. Like I've done that with Robocop. <laughs> where I've listened to like several podcasts where they're talking about Robocop. That's in- how you found Blank in- Check, in- yeah. Yeah, in- <laughs> including a podcast where they only talk about Robocop every the, week. The Robocop minute is there a robocop minute? there should be a robocop minute I th- yeah i i i, I yeah no they, they, <laughs> i think uh, I, 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 robocopaganda I, um <laughs> but um there you can have that podcast title we do for have free, a robocop I minute yeah every I, every episode yeah just braced out um across the run so yeah i, I think like again you, you mentioned the time travel episode thing and i think we talked about this like when we talked about like when we talk about all the Star Trek movies, which we have talked about and will talk about, the the weird sense that, like, when Star Trek goes to the movies, it at times becomes more of a TV show than it actually was when it was on television. At times it feels more like what we recognize today, certainly, as a TV show, where it is heavily serialized. You have returning and recurring characters, recurring guest stars. You have long-form storytelling, which obviously... Wouldn't have been a thing when Star Trek was on the air in the sixties, where everything now it's now uh, it's yeah yeah and and I mean like how much kind of of movies kind of heritage do you go back and look at something like this or is it just that they're making movies at the same time as Star Wars? Yes, precisely it, right? Yeah, that well that that I think is precisely it, and that is also I think the fact that they're being made a very quickly, b being made by the seat of their pants with limited budget, which means you have to recycle sets, you have to recycle cast members. And C is the fact that I think we mentioned it when we talked And about- just recycle. <laughs> Another spoiler for the movie that we were discuss. <laughs> Reduce, reuse, and recycle. <laughs> it, is, it is very much in keeping with the ethos of this movie. Um, but we mentioned we talked about like The Wrath of Khan, how like, after Gene Roddenberry is kind of shooed out the door gently by Paramount, the guy who basically becomes the like guiding light of the Star Trek franchise is Harv Bennett. And he is a TV man through and through. And he's talked about how, um, like, he's talked about how the three Genesis movies, the, the Star Trek trilogy that goes through two, three, and four, he looks at them as like taking his television, like, background and applying it to a feature film franchise. Did so, you say he was from like Colombo? I don't know if he was from Colombo, but he was from like um he was from a whole bunch of stuff in the 70s. The, the million dollar man I think was the one. Okay. But yeah, so he said basically so like Star Trek 2 was the bottle episode where you have a limited number of sets and a very tiny budget and you make it work by just redressing the sets and having long conversations on them. Star Trek 3 is the big cliffhanger where one of your main characters is about to die, but then he doesn't at the end and you bring him back. And then Star Trek 4 is the one where you go on location and you travel back in time, which are, as he said, as a TV producer, is the kind of thing you arrive at like towards the end of the season where you desperately need to save money and you desperately need to find something new and visually interesting to attempt. So I kind of find it interesting that like as 
these become more movies, they also arguably become kind of more TV. But just very quickly, in terms of like background of the movie, we mentioned Paramount released the motion picture. It made a shed load of money, got bad reviews. Paramount were like, we don't know if this is a sustainable model. So what we'll do is we will cut the budget dramatically and we'll make like The Wrath of Khan for Peanuts. And The Wrath of Khan comes out and it makes a shed load of money. And Paramount are like, still don't know if that was a fluke. Still don't know if we trust this. So we give maybe a tiny bit more money to The Search for Spock. And they go out and they make a movie and it is massively successful. At which point you arrive at Star Trek 4. And I think it's like Ralph Winter, the producer, has said like, what literally happens here is they end up moving at Paramount from the TV division into the film division. And it is just an incredible change in terms of how this movie is made. Uh, in terms of like technology, where they start using like long lenses, uh, which are just things that are reserved for film use. Uh, and we'll talk about maybe that when we go talk about going on location. They go on location. They don't film on sound stages. They film on actual locations, which is one of the first times Star Trek has done that for very obvious reasons. It being a franchise that is set in the future and therefore requiring a lot of sets to be built. And the third thing that happens is that uh, basically Leonard Nimoy is treated as an auteur. He's treated as the man who will be the visionary director of Three Men and a Baby, the biggest movie of, I think, 1987. But basically, he says, look, with Star Trek 3, I was brought in and I was told I have to do this, this and this. And from the outset, Paramount sat down with me and said, what do you want to do? We want this to be a Leonard Nimoy picture. And of course, you know, we kind of alluded to it. The themes of this movie derive particularly from Nimoy's interest. They're things that drive Nimoy as a filmmaker, arguably as a human being. They're very Star Trek, I think, as well, right? Yes. I mean, the the... the well, the the importance of the Spock character to the franchise and to other kind of Spock stand-ins, like, I guess, Data. Yeah. Um, Are you the Odo, Tuvok, yeah. Seven of Nine, uh, T'Pol? Yeah. Every Star Trek franchise, every Star Trek series has a Spock character. Sometimes it is literally Spock, as in Strange New Worlds. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. But again, like, Nimoy is basically told, look, you can do what you want. There is one potential caveat. I don't know if you know this. Do you know who almost starred in this movie? Who almost starred in this movie? When has the movie come out? 1986. Think about who is... Who Think about who's at Paramount in 1986. Sorry, I feel like that's a mean question to ask Andrew with his encyclopedic <laughs> I <don't> knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Um, but uh, also think about who is like one of the biggest movie stars in American cinema in the late 80s, who's arrived quite suddenly. I'll give you that. He arrived quite suddenly out of relatively nowhere. Uh, his first big hit I'm, was... I, how, many, how many guesses do I get? Okay, we'll give you three guesses. Make it interesting. Okay, so okay, do you want... Tom Cruise. <laughs> Miss. Charlie Sheen. Okay, you don't want any more hints. You're just going for it. Just, okay, we're, just, we're all in. All right. am, I, am I warm? <laughs> Not really, no. Um, you're, you're probably closer with what Charlie Sheen would become. So it's a comedy actor. It's a big comedy actor. Emerges in the late 80s, kind of unexpectedly. He's a TV guy, then he becomes a film guy... He becomes a film guy almost by accident. Oh. You could is say that I... he's Paramount's golden child. Oh, okay. Now I don't know what it is. I was going to say Michael Keaton. No. Okay. It, it's Eddie Murphy. 
Oh. It was okay. almost Eddie Murphy. Um, Eddie Murphy was apparently a huge Star Trek fan. Uh, apparently, some of the weirdest meetings that Leonard Nimoy has ever been in were the meetings that he had with Eddie Murphy and his two bodyguards. Um, but apparently, yeah, the plan was originally that once they figured they were going back in time, they were like, okay, can we get a celebrity in here? And apparently, depending on who you ask... I think that would have maybe... I mean, it would have taken over the movie. Yes. And it would have been difficult to kind of like have then star trek 5 without <laughs> without eddie murphy well again like uh, we will get into the specifics of character stuff later on but broadly speaking the plot would have been very similar but the character who is the jillian taylor character who is basically the one person in the present day of 1986 was in the original pitch three different people first of which was jillian taylor who was a newswoman investigating strange occurrences the second one is an expert in whales, for reasons that become obvious if you are familiar with the plot, which we'll talk about in a moment. And the third one is that it was going to be the Eddie Murphy character was going to be a lecturer. It was going to be a college lecturer who believed that aliens existed and who was broadcasting like whale signals and strange sounds from his like University of Berkeley kind of classroom that would attract Kirk and Spock. And he would kind of latch on to them. And a lot of the stuff that was, you know, ends up in the movie with the Taylor character originated with the Eddie Murphy character. So, you know, things like him grabbing people as they beam away, that sort of stuff. But yeah, it was it was something that was apparently very seriously considered for a little while. And it's kind of odd because like the Star Trek franchise, there are reportedly like plenty of famous Star Trek fans in Hollywood. I think you jumped on Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is reportedly a star trek fan as much as he is a fan of, <laughs> of every anything movie. everything that ever existed um but things like say tom hanks is apparently a huge uh star trek nerd for example it's kind of interesting that the franchise has never really never really capitalized on that it's never really like yeah. done stunt casting off the back of these people who love it it is peculiar that they just kind of reuse the same cast kind of from the television shows, with the exception of the J.J. Abrams movies. But again, you're just you're recasting actors from you know, for the TV show. Yeah, but you're not. You're you're, you're that, that's the whole thing. It's like yeah. the the that you're 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 not. There wasn't a TV show which then got made into like J.J. Abrams films, movies. Yeah. Um, you, you know it, that you heard about the Noah Hawley thing, right? There was a there were reportedly plans. Okay, well. This is getting off the beaten track. I guess this is Star Trek 4 too. But this is the thing after the third Abrams movie where Paramount had like three Star Trek movies in development simultaneously, which is fascinating. The first is like the fourth Abrams movie. So let's discard that. Let's forget about that. But the other two are, the first one was going to be Quentin Tarantino's rumored Star Trek Yeah, because he, he, he's a, a director who's who, who had expressed a lot of interest in... In Star Trek, he had also expressed interest in uh, James Bond. Yes. Yes, yeah, it'll be directly to Pierce Brosnan rather than to the production team, <laughs> uh, which is one of my favorite stories. It's like when they tell the production team, they're like, well, if we had known that, we might have done something about it. <laughs> like actually let them make the movie. Uh, and the third one was the the one from Noah Hawley. Noah Hawley was apparently working on his own independent Star Trek movie. He's the guy who did like Fargo. He's the guy who did Legion. He's the guy who's working on the Alien the television shows? show. Yeah, the shows. Okay. Um, yeah, he's, he's not the Coens. Um, right. <laughs> but he's the guy. He's also working on the Alien TV show with Ridley Scott as well. But that was canned because apparently the plot was a pandemic. 
Okay. He he had a similar brief with this movie where like one of the things that this movie comes from is Nimoy and Bennett sitting down together and going, what do we want to do with this movie? We don't want a villain. Like the big thing with this movie with Star Trek 4 is on the TV show we could do episodes where we didn't have villains. We've had, you know, obviously you have V'ger in the motion picture, you have Khan in the Wrath of Khan, you crudge in Star Trek 3. We want to see if Vigor's we can do... V'ger's arguably not a villain. Though. Okay, but an antagonist then. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that there's an antagonist here as well. I think this is similar to um, the uh, the first movie. In that there there's a probe um and like there's a threat to earth caused yeah by probe and-, and it's kind of um i i'm i'm forgetting how kind of like um vague or unthreatening <laughs> the the, the <laughs> was but i i no i i think no Viger was far more threatening <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was, is introduced it like was, reducing three ships to nothingness it was more terrifying than the borg really yeah. <laughs> in, um, in terms I of mean, like star trek it was, it was yeah it, it was adding their their individuality to to, <laughs> to its uh, own to its own but with without like there being anything there afterwards. No technological yeah. distinctiveness, no biological distinctiveness, yeah. just its own. But yeah, yeah, I think at one stage Kirk remarks that it's just using that matter to build like a bigger part of itself. But yeah, we're not talking about the motion picture. We did a two hour discussion of that. You can listen to that. Yeah. So with with the voyage home, with the Eddie Murphy thing, what happens is one of three things. The first is that either Murphy loses interest, which is one of the stories that goes around. The second is that Paramount apparently step in and go, nope, uh, because Paramount are like, look, we have the Eddie Murphy business and we have the Star Trek business. And if we put them together, what we will get will be lesser than having both of them separately, which is kind of interesting because it's hard to imagine a studio thinking that way today. Do they also have the the Sylvester Stallone business? <laughs> like, Can we was, wasn't it like, um, was, it, was, it, was it Cobra was meant to be... Uh, Beverly Hills Cop, or 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 that Stallone was Stallone meant to was be meant to be Beverly, Beverly Hills, Hills Cop. Cop. That was yeah. the original pitch. It was supposed to be Stallone, and then he dropped out, uh, and basically Murphy came in, and that's why the movie works. I think because it's played straight, but Murphy is the wild card, as opposed to the later sequels where they start leaning into uh, the Murphiness of it all. But yeah, basically, so yeah, the rumor, the suggestion is that Paramount say no Eddie Murphy in the movie, and then they they have to retool it. And look, we'll talk about all that in the spoiler zone. So before we do, three questions to get us started. Now, before we begin, this movie has never been on the IMDb Top 250 Movies of All Time, which is something of a surprise almost, to me. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, 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 it is a wee bit, considering like its popularity and the um, IMDb existing in the late 90s on the internet <laughs> and therefore being disproportionately fond of or you know disproportionately composed of star trek fans yeah well i yeah this is something i maybe want to put a pin in and talk about later when we talk about the movie and its legacy and its reputation but like this is a massive success yeah. it is the most successful star trek movie to this point adjusted for inflation i believe it is still domestically the most successful star trek movie ever made i think abrams two star trek movies top it but not adjusted for inflation uh they also top it internationally um which we'll you know talk about if we talk about when we talk about but it also and this is the most impressive thing it has an a plus cinema score 
which means that audiences that went to see it on opening weekend, and there were lots of them, all pretty much unanimously gave it an A-plus rating. I believe it was only the fifth movie since the scheme was introduced in 1982 to score an A-plus. It was also the first movie since 1982 to get an an A-plus cinema rating. Four movies from 1982 did, including like E.T., for example, but uh, it none in 83, none in 84, none in 85. And this was, I believe, the fifth, which is a remarkable accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in some way that um, I, I, I watched with my wife um, and Petrina said that wasn't the worst <laughs> movie you've watched for the podcast. <laughs> that, 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 I've, uh, that I've watched. Yeah. We are coming off a Chucky season. <laughs> yeah um yeah so like like which 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 is which is quite like a good review for um uh what this is which is kind of a a a a genre franchise uh movie with without kind of established um hollywood stars yeah and something that has traditionally been like something onto itself, where like yeah. even if you have never watched Star Trek, you know what Star Trek is, you know what Star Trek fans are, and you maybe even know that it's not for you. Like this is the big thing where Nimoy was on it. Like again, when when he said like, look, we don't want to have a villain in it, or we don't want to have a black hat in it. What we also want is we want to make a movie that people who are not Star Trek fans can go and see. People who are not yeah. Star Trek fans can go it, and enjoy. It's going to relate to. 80s kind of culture yeah you know it's like kind of um james bond um roger moore's james bond making a quiche it's like that's for 80s audience (laughs) to be to be like so they can relate to it yeah yeah exactly it's like when when that timothy dalton movie has a bond villain who yogs i see yeah is that the word um with a with a walkman um but yes you yes it, it it does feel like it's very much kind of like an outreach thing and i think and maybe this is something to put in our, our kind of putting up it's more it's more in and in, in kind of like an 80s movie than, a star, than trek movie. a star trek movie in some ways in the sense that it it's trying to kind of say something about the the which which good star trek movies do but this is very obvious because it's a uh, it's time travel and it's time travel to the present day. Yeah. The present day when the movie's released. Yes, yeah. 1986. Uh, I mean, ba- based on the pollution content. <laughs> <laughs> this is a primitive and paranoid culture, Andrew. <laughs> but again, like I, part of me wonders if this thing is down to the fact or the fact that it's not on the 250 is because maybe because this is the, the movie for Normos. Yeah. 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 I, f- I, f- I feel like the, um, if <laughs> you like, if, yeah, if uh, if Star Trek is your thing, and yeah, if the internet is your thing, then 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 yeah, they might be like a little put off by this because it's it's um it is your your um kind of your it's your dad's Star Trek, your dad's yeah, your granddaddy's, <laughs> your granddaddy's Star Trek. I mean, what that is the thing that I find interesting. And again, this is something I flagged when we talked about like the wrath of Khan, but the idea that like, this is so successful that you get, and also so expensive Shatner and Nimoy apparently both charge like $2.5 million a piece for their work on this film, <laughs> uh, which is a lot of money for, as you said, TV actors. I suppose like, um, it makes sense 
for these I, I I know it's a big thing like the amount that they charge for these movies but it's not like they can like it's not like um they can bring Tom Selleck in to replace plus it, it's also kind of what other big paydays are they going to get yeah. like is William Shatner going to be like well I'm trying out for <laughs> Batman <laughs> Um, I'm, uh, I'm I, Batman. <laughs> um, yeah. You want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Um, but that was terrible, and I apologize. Are are, are some other like kind of like you know big movie? They're 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 the names Bond, James Bond. But anyway, sorry. I'm, I'm thinking about the summer of '89. I'm running through the summer of '89. It's like, and what you, else is there? What I'm, bomb I mean, on the toilet. A bomb. <laughs> on. Can't really do Robocop. <laughs> then. Or live. You're coming with me. Um, but uh, yeah, so basically, yeah, I think you're And again, we talked about this where like Shatner had the really lean 70s. It's hilarious and worth it. <laughs> and entirely, entirely worth it. I regret nothing. No editing on this episode. But. Um, like we talked about like Shatner had a really lean 70s like he had a really bad 70s and so you I don't think you can really blame him for being antsy about that but my point I was going to make was Paramount look at the fact that they're paying Shatner 2.5 million dollars and Nimoy 2.5 million dollars by the way Nimoy is also directing and writing the movie for 2.5 million dollars just to you know put that in perspective and then obviously the fact that this movie makes a shed load of money Paramount are like, well, why are we still... We want Star Trek. People want Star Trek. Why are we still paying these dinosaurs this absurd amount of money? And it's like, what if... And hear me out here. What if we made a TV show with new characters who we paid less money and, like, just made a shed load of money off that? And so, like, this is how you get the next generation. This is how Paramount decide that's what we're doing. It's funny that they don't... That they they have they haven't... I mean, maybe they maybe they were always intending on going on that model, but was 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 there a a, a point at which like Star Trek Nemesis is out and it's like okay, so uh, a Voyager movie next, or <laughs> like or or kind of like let's not let's find a new um, Star Trek cast rather than doing something kind of unprecedented and. Just rebooting the original series. Uh, oh, you mean in terms of like the Abrams stuff? Because what happened yeah. is Nemesis killed the cinematic franchise. Nemesis cooked its goose. Nemesis came out and crashed and burnt. Okay. And like you can actually, when you're watching Star Trek Enterprise, which was on the air when Nemesis came out, you watch the week that Nemesis crashed and you watch a couple of weeks later and you can just feel like you can feel the franchise die a little bit in a way that is hard so, uh, to put on screen. Okay, so if it had done well, they would have been like, okay, but we're not going to uh, make another of those. We're going to do an Enterprise movie. That, that was reportedly the plan. The report, the plan was that they had signed the Enterprise cast. They would skip over Deep Space Nine because the Deep Space Nine was the red-haired stepchild. Its own thing, its own creative task, its own actors who were in some ways maybe not as amenable to working and making franchise commitments as their counterparts on on Next Generation or Voyager. Uh, you can kind of see that in in like modern Star Trek in like who comes back and who doesn't. 
a lot of the Voyager, a lot of the Next Generation cast come back. A lot of Deep Space Nine cast are like, no, that was fun, but we're we're not really interested in doing that. But the idea was that when they cast Enterprise, the rumor was that they signed the cast for contracts for seven seasons with an expectation that afterwards it would go into movies because that would neatly dovetail right. with like the end of when they planned like Patrick Stewart pricing himself out of the market or whatever. So they were they were they were kind of planning on continuing that model. That like, model, yeah. That and it was just Nemesis that kind of uh, yes. screwed the pooch. Nemesis so completely screwed. Like it not is, insurrection. Not in <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. There are not words to like part of it is is the fact that it's bad, but so insurrection is also bad, to be clear. But part of it's also the hubris of releasing it opposite the second Harry Potter movie. Like it opened in cinemas the same weekend as, is it like the Prisoner of Azkaban? No, that's the third. Is it Chamber of Secrets? I think it's Chamber of Secrets. No idea. But it opened the same weekend and just got like steamrolled. It was like Oprah facing Chucky. Um, it was a bloodbath. Um, I love the idea that they had to explain to Patrick Stewart what a Harry Potter is. But yeah, so basically... Oprah facing Chucky. We talked about this. Did Chucky do that? No, she... Beloved. Um, was it like Seed of Chucky beat Beloved at the box office? And Oprah was talking about how like she went on like a binge eating thing and people had to explain to her what a Chucky was. Like, I didn't know what Chucky was. They had to tell me that I was beaten by a talking serial killer doll. That did not help my depression. Um, but it yeah. was the Chamber of Secrets. I Thank went you. to the fact machine. For me. I appreciate that, Andrew. I appreciate <laughs> I, keeping me honest. Um, that's one with Kenneth Brown. No, 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 no. <laughs> We're not going We're to not talk gonna about it. We're not going to double check It'll be fairly one-sided. <laughs> I think it would be zero-sided, but anyway. Okay, so, yeah. So, basically, this is the one that gets you. This is the movie that gets you the next generation. You don't get the next generation without the voyage home. Right. And I think it's interesting that for the next decade up until 1996 when we like reached Yafit and yeah and, and um, who else was on that list of potential <laughs> candidates i don't know um but yeah Yafit well Yafit Koto is interesting because like it aren't there photos of him in the uniform and stuff yeah like which is amazing like it's just great genevieve bougeau in uh voyager is one of the great examples they had like Genevieve Bougeau and she was she was on set and she filmed the entire pilot episode. That's right. Yeah. And they have clips of it. They have like you can see deleted scenes of it. And it is very obvious that she is not an actor who feels comfortable on television. But I, 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 they, they, I, I reckon that could have worked in, 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 in the way that kind of um, Patrick Stewart didn't really. Uh, it wasn't an instant kind of um, success. Yeah. Yeah. Him being on it. He didn't really kind of uh, seem to fit in with the other cast and that sort of stuff. I think the difference is that, like, Stuart didn't really have anywhere to go. Stuart was, like, an acting teacher. That My favorite fact is that, like, when Stuart got the role of Picard, he had to stop teaching his acting class. And he had to find a suitable replacement. And that suitable replacement was none other Ben Kingsley, that's who it was. I was just <laughs> running through my head trying to remember who it was because it was another bald British actor. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking, like, yeah, it's like, and I imagine all the students are bald as well, <laughs> like a young Jason Statham. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, but I think that, yeah, I think Bougeot, having been a performer who was like in movies, was able to go, no, or no. Um, <laughs> but uh, like, but my, 
point is that for 10 years after this happens, this is like the default mode of the franchise, right? So when you do big event episodes of Next Generation Deep Space Nine and Voyager, a significant number of them are riffing on this template. So I'm thinking of like Time's Arrow, the fifth, sixth season cliffhanger on The Next Generation. So first cliffhanger they do is the Borg one. That's the best of both worlds. Have to do that. That's the Borg or the big new alien nemesis. Uh, the second cliffhanger they do is the Klingon one, which is Redemption, which kind of have to do because that's the first long form story arc the franchise ever had. But the first time they have to do a cliffhanger two-parter for the sake of doing a cliffhanger two-parter, it's we're going to send the crew back in time to San Francisco for a two-part event episode. Then you have Deep Space Nine. And again, Deep Space Nine, you know, you have a couple of multi-part episodes beforehand, like you have The Search, which is a a reboot at the start of the third season. You have The Circle, which is a three-part epic at the start of the second season. But their first two-parter, which is just a two-parter for the sake of being a two-parter, is past tense, which is an episode where they travel back in time to Los Angeles and get stuck in Los Angeles in the past. Then you have Voyager. Voyager's first two-parter is Scorpion, which is a Borg story, again, like the best of both worlds. But their second two-parter is Future's End, which is the cast go back to 1996 and get stranded in 1996 in Los Angeles again and have to kind of fit in and get home and all this sort of stuff. So for like a decade when you're doing a big event story in Star Trek for the sake of doing a big event story in Star Trek, you do this. This is like what people think is crowd-pleasing Star Trek, which is fascinating. And we kind of talked about it with like the Wrath of Khan, where around about 96, which is when you do First Contact, it switches. Because First Contact's the movie that does both the Wrath of Khan, where you have Picard versus the Borg. Yeah. Like it's, it's the old enemies returned. Our captain is become obsessed with him or whatever and the subplot it's, is it's it yeah it's the whole moby dick thing yeah which which um which come comes across like very heavy on in 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 boat movies yes i do like that in in first contact lily references moby dick despite having never read moby dick which is one of my favorite star trek <laughs> um, she is the andrew quinn of of star trek first contact hey <laughs> i'm always proud when you do it too <laughs> nothing nothing brings me more thrill in a conversation than andrew referencing something like oh what did you think of it it's like oh i never watched it um but like but i read books (laughs) (laughs) okay that wasn't what i was (laughs) (laughs) i have not i've not read moby dick in fairness but like with first contact you should read moby dick Uh, with moby with moby dick what you have is two plots happening simultaneously with first contact you have like the primary plot is wrath of khan the secondary plot is they travel back in time to the past and Earth and have to, like, pr- protect mankind, yeah. which is very much the voyage home. But, like, the first contact is the point at which the franchise says, these are the two iconic Star Trek movies. And the one that is most important is The Wrath of Khan. Mm. That's the one that we matter. That's the one that we want to keep making. That's the template going forward. And that's what gets you, like, you know, again, just year of hell uh, for the uniform bliss the augments three-parter well year of hell is also a, a time travel kind of it is but it's less it's of... kind it's not real i don't think it's that related to voyage home mm. in that it is like yeah it's it's much more gritty so yeah. yeah yeah but just i find it interesting that like the voyage home is like the populist star trek movie it's the one for normos and for 10 years the franchise is like you know what that's what star trek should be 
And at about 10 years in, the franchise is like, you know what? We're the biggest thing on Earth. Screw Normos. We're making the Wrath of Khan from here until eternity. Hop in, loser. We're going to the Wrath of Khan. I just, I find that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the, there's elements of this in Insurrection, I guess, in the sense of the the kind of environmental sort of... Message of it? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it, yeah, yeah. It's kind. Of, it's more of an indigenous population message, isn't it? It's yeah, but like it, it's and... it's kind of exploitation of kind of natural, natural resources. resources yeah. And yeah, yeah. Fair, fair. I suppose. So what you're saying is, it was actually insurrection that killed, like the voyage. That was the point <laughs> at which everybody involved was like, "Okay, voyage home. You've had enough. Go home. No more of this." But after insurrection, they made another movie, <laughs> it's, it's kind of... which which was very heavily Wrath of Khan. Nemesis. It's <laughs> yeah. like, it's like, what if? Both of them were Picard. What if Wrath of Khan, but hear me out, Kirk is Picard and, wait for this, Khan, also Picard. Picard, yes. Um, Picard squared, P squared, if you will. All right, so three questions to get us started. Do you think the voyage home belongs... There's, there's always this thing in, in Next Generation of Picard uh, being like a former total jerk. <laughs> <laughs> like... They have that more than once. They 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 have the one where he is um kind of reliving his uh his Oh life. tapestry where he goes yeah. like Q sends him back to his academy days. Yeah. And, and he, he gets stabbed through the heart in a bar fight. Yeah. Yeah. Where he chooses to do the same thing again, essentially. Yes, yeah. Basically. Knowing that he'll end up where he will, because obviously that's what matters. I mean, you could make an argument that Picard kind of I love the guy, Picard, one of my favorite Star Trek characters, one of the most interesting complex characters. Don't know that he stops being a jerk. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that there's ever a point. Like, Picard's always had, always has this ego about him. Like, he always has this sense of, like, pr- again, it's there in First Contact. It's probably the best example of it. But, like... Yeah, and I suppose he's not that cuddly. <laughs> no, he it? hates kids. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, they're, yeah, one of my favorite early Star Trek Next Generation, I love that, welcome to the general Star <laughs> Trek discussion, but like is Time Squared, which is the one where Picard finds a shuttle with himself on it from the future. And like, it's just, it's an episode that I think is sorely underrated because it's a fascinating Picard episode because the entire premise of the episode is this is from an Enterprise in the future, which presumably blew up, right? And there's this shuttle pod with this Picard inside it who's come from the future. And, like, the entire arc for Picard is, that doesn't make sense. Why would I run from my exploding ship? I cannot wrap my head around it. To the point where the climax of the episode, which is kind of incredible in terms of, like, psychodrama, is the Picard from the future wakes up in sickbay. The ship starts, like, tearing itself apart. The Picard from the future starts walking towards the, like, shuttle, insisting that he needs to get in and to get out of the ship. And Picard just, like, murders himself rather than let himself abandon ship again. Like, which feels like it's it's one of those great, like, Picard maybe has some issues. I feel like he could maybe do with working through some stuff about his self-image. Where it's like, I don't abandon my ship. I would rather shoot myself with a phaser before I abandon my ship. Because that's the kind of man I am. Uh, incidentally, doing so saves the ship somehow. I don't remember the particulars of it. <laughs> Um, it, I think it maybe say it's metaphysical. Maybe saves the show uh, because they're like, no, he would never abandon the ship. Therefore, the ship is safe. But um, so, do you think Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home belongs on a list 
of the 250 greatest movies ever made. No, no. I kind of feel feel the way um, I uh, to an extent that Star Trek fans feel that it's it's it, it it's a um, a kind of a light movie. Yeah, you know, and um, it's sort of kind of trying to, I think, court the um, the mainstream audience. Like I think it's a acceptably Star Trek kind of, yeah. you know. Yeah, um, this is this is something where I think you and I differ on, say, the Abrams movies, for example, where yeah. I, I like that those are courting the normies movies. I like I, that I could go see them. I prefer my this to them. Oh yeah, yeah. Be, 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 well, this is more Star Trek, of course. In yeah, be, commas, be, because it, it's 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 kind of um, big thematic sci-fi, you yeah. know, where it's saying something very kind of important to our day but also kind of like evergreen and kind of you know uh, philosophical and meaningful yeah yeah and and, and, I, and I, I like that about it as well but i do think that there is something interesting that in that i word. think it's very relevant today yes and we've talked about it before that's something i struggle with a bit with like modern star trek where like I think a lot of modern Star Trek or a lot of the early modern Star Trek is about stuff. Like, I think the first scene of Discovery is about, like, what it's like to live under Trumpism. I think, however clumsily, the first two seasons of Picard are about, like, you know, the immigration crisis, isolationism, America first, Brexit, all that sort of stuff that really matters to Patrick Stewart. I think even, say, the animated Lower Decks is, like, about the future of work and labor and all these things that are very relatable and mundane and say something about, like, the world in which we live. But I, I do, I find myself struggling with, like, a lot of the more modern fan-pleasing stuff, like, say, Strange New Worlds or the third season of Picard, where I sit down and I watch these and I go, what is this about? What is it saying? How does it relate to the modern world? Does it have anything to say about the modern world? And the answer seems to be no. It's just retreated into this, ironically enough for the movie we've talked about, nostalgic time warp. And, like, that's something that I, I kind of miss about like the Voyage Home, where the Voyage Home is, as you say, so heavily on the nose, it is impossible not to grasp what it is saying and what it is about. It's aboutness, as it were. And I just, I find myself missing that aboutness uh, in, in in modern Star Trek, as, as strange as that is to say, you know? I don't know. Okay, cool. And for myself? Maybe. I don't know. Again, this is one of the things where it's like, should a Star Trek movie be on the list? Probably not. It's a TV franchise rather than a film franchise. I think we've talked about this and said that, like, the Star it's Trek franchise would be Wrath of Khan. Like, if it, it, it would be the one. Right? That that's the thing is that like I don't. I would almost make an argument for this over Wrath of Khan. Yeah, like, this is, and I'd be sympathetic to that because yeah. I'm no great lover of Wrath of Khan either. I mean, I love most of the Star Trek movies. Like unashamedly we talked about how much i love like the search for spock i have no shame in my love of star trek movies, but i think <laughs> this is like this is just a moment for the franchise if that makes sense this is a thing where the franchise i think permeates pop culture it's a comeback moment i think for the fran- it's, a, it's like this is a show that was forgotten and cancelled in the 60s not forgotten, but it was cancelled in the 60s before it hit 100 episodes. It was cancelled weeks before the moon landing. It kind of went through syndication. It, we, you know, it struggled through the 70s. It the always fail- had an audience, though. It did, but it yeah. never really found mass appeal. It never really got the validation, I think, that like 
an artifact like this kind of wants, if that yeah, makes sense. That the people who connected with it really connected with it, but they were a small church. Yeah, that that's exactly it. It was never Star Wars. And I mean, there's an argument to be made about whether it should want to be Star Wars, uh, whether that is something to which it should aspire. But I think this is... There's something uh, far less interesting, I think, about Star Wars, I guess. Yes, not to reopen that debate, but yes, um, I, I would kind of, I would agree with that sentiment. But I think this is the moment where it comes closest to being a cultural monument. Like, this is the point that arguably begins that great reign of about, like, 10 to maybe 12 years where the franchise is, quote-unquote, a big deal, but part of the mainstream conversation where you can point to characters from the original Star Trek or the next generation and people will recognize the names, at least, yeah. sometimes the faces, in a way that, say, I don't think, like, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise ever really accomplish. And I think that, like, this is the moment where it's kind of a coming home or a celebration for the franchise. And I think that's kind of what the movie is about, not to jump into the spoiler zone too early. And I think that you could maybe yeah. make an argument for that, you know? I don't yeah, know. no, I, 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 I definitely see that. And I I, I think it's, it's um, uh, we have to be kind of, you know, thankful for this movie for doing that. Because I, I it's possible that Star Trek wouldn't have been kind of as big a part of our lives because we we're not kind of baby boomers you know who yeah. who watched the show <laughs> kind of in 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 it wasn't showing in syndication when we were younger like i remember it was a big deal when sky showed i think it was the savage curtain was the first episode of star trek i ever saw the first episode of the original star trek i ever saw because obviously they showed next no, generation i i watched yeah. no yeah uh, original series really as a child hardly at all there they, there would be the very very kind of rare one it was all about the next generation yeah. have you gone back have you gone back and watched the original series no okay cool grand i have because i'm a huge nerd um okay and then second question would this be on your own personal 250 your own 250 favorite movies um i mean it might i i i fit in, i think it probably won't I I I feel like the Star Trek movies that I'll probably put there would be like six and generations, I think. Okay, we are definitely covering generations. <laughs> <laughs> it would be interesting to go back to generations and find that it's actually not very good. <laughs> it's actually a, a like a very fluffy um movie with no like profundity whatsoever andrew's sitting there when i forgot that picard already drove a dune buggy i forgot that that was in generations <laughs> no i need you just realize that patrick stewart's a terrible actor <laughs> <laughs> when he went to when he went to cinema he took notes from william shatner he just had to really just lean into that style um <laughs> Uh, for myself probably yes and again i've said this because i'm a huge nerd i think like i think i said search for spock will be on my 250 at which point there is no excuse for not having uh, the voyage <laughs> home on there but i think for me it would definitely this is probably the one out of like the other ones yeah. that would be closest to getting on yeah. like above kind of wrath of Khan for you wrath of Khan or the motion picture i think when we were talking about the motion picture i was quite kind of generous to it and i might have even said that like I would, I would, I would have it on the, 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 the list. But like, if you're, if, if, if you're going to kind of revisit those choices, like you might, it, I, I, 
I might be looking to kind of have this and not those. I don't know. We, we, we did, I think al- I, we did I, also talk on the motion picture episode about how, like, during the flyby of the ship, we both burst out laughing when it just refused to end. There was a, there was a point <laughs> yeah. during the flyby where we both were just like, okay. They, yeah, I mean, I think one thing I said about the Star Trek movies as well is that I own the movies, the first 10. Yeah. So... They're <laughs> like, packed and ready to go, baby. Yeah, I don't want to lose them when <laughs> when I'm limited to like my 250 movies on Good Movie Island. Andrew receives a communication uh, from Dundalk letting him know that unfortunately all 10 Star Trek DVDs perished in a freak fire. <laughs> um, that's why Andrew's been acting very melancholy on the podcast lately. But yes, so um, in terms of myself, yes, yeah, so it would definitely be on there. I think it would be six would very obviously be on there. I think we we both think six is the best Star Trek movie. Yeah. I think controversially, I would put first, first contact. contact. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know. Sorry. I know. I'm. No, it's all right. Um, And then I think it might. Be, I think a lot of people like first contact. Yeah. I think first contact is just, I think just efficiently. It is like the most efficient Star Trek movie yeah. or perhaps the most Star Trek movie. Yeah. I. I suppose I didn't like, I mean, it was all boss and cool and everything, but I didn't like its reliance on the kind of space battle. And the militarism. Of it. Yeah, exactly. And this movie is like the the solar opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think this would be up there. It'll be, this is kind of like around, I know I'm going to say into darkness and everybody's going to lose their minds, but this would be around like into darkness for me. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Um, But I I do really adore this movie. So this is probably safely tucked away in my 250. And final question. If listeners have not seen Star Trek for the voyage home, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? It is available on Paramount plus. Yeah, I would. I mean, if you have um, Paramount plus, yeah, I, I, I think it's worth, I feel like it's worth watching the 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 first ten. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, the, it feels like a a um a, the kind of it feels like a a a a decent. You know, we've just started. We've just finished talking about the Chucky movies. <laughs> so, like, why wh- wh- watching? What do you want to do? What's your next? Franchise? Watching those eight movies and that people do that. I think during the pandemic yourself but also like like a, a lot of other people would have watched these kind of like eight or nine or ten movie runs in yeah. kind of franchises well, i think and when we were talking about the chucky movies you were like that's how people watch old movies now isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it's like again explaining why we live in the franchise age that we live in where it's like a new star trek movie doesn't just mean that paramount sell you the new star trek movie it means that they also get you to go back and watch the previous like yeah 13 i i i'm i'm I feel like we either no we we haven't have we talked about John Wick? Four? No, no, no. We'll be doing that in two weeks' time. I'm looking forward to it because my my problem with John Wick one, two, three, and three is that they're kind of the same movie, and that's for a franchise kind of you 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 can do that, but they kind of tend to blend together where where it's kind of like. Which one was that? Where it's yeah. like nobody is confused about which one was like Chucky 3 or, or, or which of the Chucky movies are which. Or which and Star Trek which movie Star is the Trek one where which. you know Data talks about how firm his breasts are. Yeah. Um, so that was a very strange example for me to pick, but I feel like it <laughs> illustrates my point. 
But yeah, nobody's talking about the Star Trek movie, which is the Save the Whales. Nobody's getting confused about which Star Trek movie that is, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or which one is the one with Khan. The, the most forgettable one, I think, is probably... Uh, the, the most forgettable ones are probably the third and the fifth. I think you would be mis- uh, uh, forgiven for thinking that things that happen at the third one happen in the... Second in the, or the, the second. fourth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right then, and for myself, absolutely. I, I again, I rewatched it for this podcast. It is just a delight. It's a lot of fun. It it is such a joy. <laughs> like that. That's the thing. Like the reason why we're covering this movie or we're covering these movies is because we did a lot of work. I had to do a lot of frantic editing for the Chucky thing. Uh, we had to do a lot of crazy stuff to make that happen. And also, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow evening uh, and don't want to have to yeah. do excessive amounts of research. Plus, we know we can half-ass a Star Trek episode yeah. and people will still listen to That's it. That's it, exactly. There's no quality control whatsoever. <laughs> no, oh, what I was actually saying before, we, before you jumped in and preempted my point um, was that like it's because it's easy to talk about. It's easy to jump in. I, yeah, obviously, it's, I'm, it's a pleasure for us. Yeah, yeah. We're scratching our... <laughs> Itch. Uh, <laughs> I love the Shatner-esque delivery of itches. Um, on that note, we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. Um, no, we, I, I feel like compare. my, my Shatner should... isn't good. I think that's the thing about a Shatner impersonation doesn't have to be good. I think like spoiler. Okay, we're leaning in zone. Okay, we're committed. Um. I feel like at the end, when we when we complete five... But Darren! Sorry, it's just getting loud. But I, Darren! How? Like, why? I feel, I feel like when we get to like the end, when we do Star Trek V and have completed the first six Star Trek movies, I'll just do a super cut of you saying spoiler zone in your Shatner impersonations. <laughs> so, Andrew... Has that been a thing? I suppose yes. it has. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem with not recording all these in a chunk. You forget, the, you forget that you've done the same thing over and over again. But yes, so Andrew. Yes. How do you feel? Um, what is Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, about for you? It's it's about the future not being promised and, and that this planet is something... That that we have a serious responsibility of as kind of stewards of this earth that we live on, and that there 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 are beautiful things in this world that are worth preserving, and that we're um, endangering those things. Yeah, yeah, that was that was obviously Nimoy's big thing was when he wanted to make it a movie, he wanted to make it about something important, and he said nothing is more important. Then, like, the survival of the planet and, like, of the life on the planet. And, like, it's kind of interesting that apparently he went, like, full circle. He talked to all number of, like, uh, bioethicists and all this sort of stuff to ask, like, about how you would construct a story like this. And according to, like, Har Bennett, there was a while where he was convinced that it was going to be Plankton. Like, that was what the Enterprise crew were going to have to go back in time and save. Um, and, like, it, it turned... It's interesting because I, I, I think large fauna are probably the easiest thing to get human beings on board with saving. And yet every continent or island that you, uh, that I should probably say uh, Europeans have ever visited, they've, uh, they've consistently wiped out 90% 
of the of the large fauna, sometimes including human yeah. <laughs> um, yes. uh, uh, populations. Yeah, like in South America, ninety percent of the, yeah. the the indigenous population, and it, like there even like recent discoveries, like Madagascar, they um, completely wiped out kind of um, local like indigenous wildlife on on. Sorry, when I say completely, I mean the same sort of practice where it's not decimation decimation is where you kill like 10 percent um this is where (laughs) where one in ten is what survives um in and in tasmania they they wiped out the entire um uh homo homo sapien indigenous um community of tasmania the last tasmanian person like, like died in captivity I didn't. I didn't even know that. I just knew about like things like say the Tasmanian wolf and like this whole indigenous. Oh thing yeah, yeah. Like, no. I, I didn't know that Tasmanians themselves, humans, human yeah. beings. Jesus, sorry. Um, I should not be surprised by that, but somehow I am. I mean, and again, like there is, there is this thing in conservation circles about large mammals and the the kind of the idea that like conservation efforts focus on pandas, and right. I, we always come back around to pandas like (laughs) like the absurdity of pandas and the idea that like pandas like look cute and so they're very easy to sell like they're the wwf kind of logo is a panda but pandas do not want to be saved seems to be the message that i get from a lot of conservation experts where it's like if you designed a species that was designed not to survive in the world it would look like a panda and there are lots of people who are like we spend billions trying to keep pandas alive almost against their very will. And we could invest that in things like, say, the African mudfish, for example, and that we'd be able to completely revive that species with a fraction of what we're spending on keeping pandas on life support. But we can't do that because they're not as marketable. They're not as cute. I just find that kind of just interesting when we're talking about like make like large mammals and conservation. Yeah. Yeah. Like there, there, there are several species of rhino, that um, I think the the was it the white or the black uh, African rhino. Anyway, there were and and there are a number of species that have kind of gone extinct in our lifetime. Yeah. So it's it's it it's it feels like there there is an ex, there is an extent to which the environmental lessons of the eighties were kind of learned, and the nineties began to be kind of like a period of of optimism. Because, for example... Well, humpback um, whales is a great example. Like, humpback whales are no longer on the brink of extinction, I believe. I believe they've been taken off the endangered species list. <laughs> Do we need to go to the fact machine? We definitely need to go to the fact machine. <laughs> <laughs> I miss going to the fact machine. As of October 2022, no longer on the endangered species list. So that's a victory. Now, Andrew did also, while researching, come up with some other whales that are... Unfortunately, still on the endangered species list. I think the blue whale. Uh, yeah, blue whale is endangered, although its population is increasing. The sperm whale is vulnerable. Gray whale is least concerned. Its population is stable. Um, do we have any more in- endangered whales? North Pacific right whale is endangered. And so is the sea whale, S-E-I. Okay. Um, um, this is all excellent radio. Um, <laughs> what? But I, I think, and like again, the arguments are made that like Star Trek for the voyage home at least contributed in some senses to like pushing for conservation of whales and helping to get like 
the, the humpback whales off the endangered species list by like putting pressure on governments and stuff like that to enact legislation to protect them like so like it does make a difference and like, there's stuff as well right, like yeah. the 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 hole in the ozone layer that closed well. didn't it during yeah, the 90s yeah. if i remember correctly yeah. exactly it was, it was the, the the that's a kind of like an example of what they're looking at trying to do in terms of um reducing now greenhouse gases and the uh, global temperature I, I forget was it was it the oslo accords or something um on um, oh is this the half a degree thing by 2050 no i think that's paris okay uh, but right. it, what, it, what, it, what, it, what i mean is the the banning of um uh, chlorofluorocarbons okay um cfcs for the to 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 close the hole in in in, in, the, ozone. in the ozone oh yeah way back way back in the 90s so what I gather from what you're saying, Andrew, is that we have solved all of the environmental problems and there is nothing to worry <laughs> about. Nothing to worry about. But no, I like I think I think you're right. Like there were there were actual gains made in the 80s and 90s, which is maybe why it feels so frustrating uh, that it really doesn't feel like that's the direction things are going at the moment. But I I, I yeah I think well yeah you 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 have like in. In America, for example, they have um, states like uh, Texas and I believe Florida banning are trying to boycott ESG kind of funds and companies that have an environmental or social or governance agenda. Yeah. Um, so there, 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 there is tension at the moment between kind of. Um, uh, it's it, it's a weird thing though because it, it thank, thankfully not all kind of I I I think you see in the UK that you have like like quite a um I suppose nationalist conservative government but they still believe in protecting the environment or at least ostensibly yeah, yeah. there's an acceptance of the science of say climate change for sure example. yeah. yeah. Whereas that that doesn't exist in the states where it is a culture war issue, like everything is a culture war issue. Sure. Um, but like, yeah, I I think there's something in that. Um, and I think like again, uh, it's just worth very quickly um mentioning that there's a quote from Nicholas Mayer. So basically, the way that this worked was they came up with the idea of traveling back in time. Uh, they basically wrote the script. They wrote the script. There were two guys hired to write the script, uh, who were Scott Mearson and Peter Crikes. And we'll maybe talk about like their experience writing the script um, later on. But they were responsible for writing the Eddie Murphy draft. That obviously didn't work. So they basically threw out the script. Now, Crikes and Mearson say they did not get fair credit for the work that was done. That a lot of their ideas, even though the Eddie Murphy character was jettisoned, a lot of their ideas were retained in the finished film. And they feel like they maybe don't get the credit they deserve in the narrative that formed, which is that... Basically, Nimoy and Bennett threw out their script and wrote the script from scratch. And they wrote the framing device, which is the bit set in the 23rd century. So the opening sequence and the closing sequence. And they brought back Nicholas Mayer to write the, hey. the bit set in the past. Mayer was apparently the main architect of the sequences set in the past. And he said it was like one of the most joyful experiences he had in the franchise. Because he didn't have to worry about directing it or budgeting it. He would literally just sit down, write like five pages a day, send them to Nimoy and Bennett, get notes. And then they would collectively send them to Shatner, which I kind of love. I feel like that's also helpful because 
He's somebody who's not familiar with Star Trek. <laughs> yes, yes, he's very much like, what is the joy here? How do I get into this? Yeah, where, yeah. where, where, and and I think with 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 the Wrath of Khan, it's like, oh, it's like Horatio Hornblower, or it's like a, a kind of a naval kind of a um, adventure. And then with this, it's like, oh, it's in the twentieth century. That's easy. Yeah, I, I could I could just kick back. Well, and again, we'll talk maybe a bit about that in a moment. But the bit that I find interesting is. Mayer raises a criticism of the movie that I honestly had not really thought about, but I think is a good one when I read it, which is that his original draft for the movie did not have Gillian Taylor going forward in time into the 23rd century. She would remain on Earth in the past. And there was supposed to be this scene where she would have a conversation with Kirk about how she was going to continue to try to fight to save the whales. Yeah. Even though Kirk would say, look, we know that the whales are going to go extinct. And if you do save them, that creates a paradox and wipes out our existence. Uh, but Mayer was like, yeah, it felt important. She said, if anyone's going to make sure this kind of disaster doesn't happen, somebody's going to have to stay behind, which I still think is the, quote, writer, unquote, ending. The end in the movie detracts from the importance of people in the present taking responsibility for the ecology and preventing problems of the future by doing something about them today, rather than catering to the fantasy desires of being able to be transported ahead in time to the near-utopian future society of the Star Trek era. And I'm like, that's a really good point. It is. It is. It is absolutely. Yeah, and it. it I, f- I, feel, I feel like, I guess there's a lot of... Uh, pessimism i suppose in our in our current kind of uh, a climate yeah i think like again this is something i i find interesting about star trek in general where star trek is about this utopian future and the idea that we have a future and we talked about yeah. how like how people like nichelle nichols have talked about how important that was in the 60s just to say to people there is a future it's it's interesting that it's not it's never a straight line yeah. Like the 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 timeline of Star Trek is that when you're watching this show after like in the 21st century. Well, hell, in uh, the 19 things, in the 19- things are going to go very bad. In the 1960s of the 1990s. Like yeah. Khan is going to conquer the world. There's going to be things That's called right. eugenics wars in yeah. the 1990s that are going to decimate humanity. And then like there'll be a united Ireland <laughs> <laughs> in 2024. Uh, yeah. they, Data's not too far off. Go, go, go data. Um, I, but, I don't know if we can say that. <laughs> that, that is very fair. Reliably. Yeah. But like you have the idea. But yeah, you're right. That like in the next generation, it's like there's the third world war happens in like the early 20th century, early 21st century in first contact. It's like the wake of like a nuclear devastated society. Yeah. Like there is this sense of it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Uh, which is kind of interesting, and I think that like, where it it, it and the interesting thing about it, I I guess in this movie is that it fits with my I think previously articulated theory that um, Star Trek is a <laughs> this isn't uh, me um, uh, giving an endorsement of Soviet Russia, <laughs> but 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 I do feel like it's an alternate universe. Where um, Russia the won com- the Cold War. Communism wins the Cold War, yeah. Because there, there is a Leningrad yes. <laughs> in, in, in this version of, 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 of reality. So, um, 
and 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 the the capital of the world is San Francisco, <laughs> as, as 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 we've said before. Yeah. Um. There's there's a Russian on the bridge. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and he, there's no sense that anybody in nineteen the going back to ninety six they find it odd that you know a Russian would be asking nuclear vessels. Everyone's <laughs> all like, yeah, no, the people in nineteen eighty six will be completely accepting of that. They're probably <laughs> Russian nuclear weapons, right? Um. Like I I do think there's there's something kind of in that which is kind of interesting where. You know that's the same aircraft carrier they used in Top Gun, which is Paramount's other massive financial success of 1986. Oh, wow. The yeah. Enterprise. It's not the Enterprise. The Enterprise was actually out at sea. They had to use a different aircraft carrier um, for those scenes. The JFK? <laughs> what, 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 what aircraft carrier was it? You know that I don't want to have to edit Sorry, this no. very heavily, Andrew. <laughs> I beg your pardon. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the same aircraft carrier, basically, as... Oh. As the one that was used in Top Gun, listeners can look that up, up at home. on their own time. <laughs> um, but I do, I do find it interesting that we, ha- like, again, you have this parody of Cold War paranoia, where you have this Russian, this little weird Russian dude, and again, Chekhov, so weird. The yeah. moment where he's like fleeing through the ship and he prances, like when he's like jetting up the stairs, he like he prances like he's a pantomime villain. It's amazing. I love Walter Koenig so so much. Was it Anton Yelchin when he was playing Chekhov was like, I was like, on the page, this character is nothing. But then I went back and I watched the original series and I was like, he has this weird little energy about him, which is just (laughs) hard to describe. And that sequence of him running around the aircraft carrier is just delightful. But I love the, the, like, the incongruity of, like, him going, where are the nuclear vessels? It's funny that he's, um, like, one of the, that, that... That he's a stand-in for the monkeys. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hip young trend. Yeah. He's hip. Like, I think we talked about last week with his Lord Fauntleroy collar. He will always be the baby. Even when, <laughs> even when he's a middle-aged man, he will still be the baby. What is your name and rank? Well, I... Pavel Andreev Chekhov. It's that moment. Admiral. <laughs> it's that moment as well where it's like, I was never that young. It's like, No. You were younger. <laughs> Sorry. Generations is your favorite Star Trek movie. <laughs> um, but like, and again, fun fact about that. You know, the moment where they're asking about the Wessels and um, a woman has that line where she's like, I think they're, they're over in the Navy. I was like, yes, that's what I asked. She was not meant to have a line, but she parked her car. At, this is, I love how this story begins. When she was appearing as an extra in that scene, she parked her car in a double yellow line and the city of San Francisco towed it and impounded it and she was like i can't afford to pay to get it taken out so they're like you can have a line in this scene then and we will pay you as a line she's like i have an equity card now because i have a line in that scene i know i'm a member of like the the screen Screen actors Actors guild Guild. yeah yeah Uh, because i needed to get my car unimpounded after appearing in that scene but like i think and this is where Darren is going to disappear up a wormhole of whatever. This is where like giant floating Darren heads will appear 3D rendered in the fog. Yeah. Um, that was, I had forgotten about that. <laughs> I always, I always forget about that somehow. <laughs> yeah. It's like a music video kind of. Yeah. It's very, like aha, the doors. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Very kind of 80s. Or something. It, it is. It's arguably more 80s than anything that actually happens in 1986. A load of, yeah. A load of Lionel Richie's um, like busts <laughs> just come out, up out of there. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Soviet Russia. This is the movie that really confirms there's no money in the future. 
This is the first time I think officially the franchise confirms that Federation doesn't have money. Yeah. I mean, there's never any money used, really. Is well, there? I mean, well, there was a bar on Earth in the last one. Like, McCoy was at a bar. Presumably, you have to pay for it. There were, like, uh, smugglers and traders in the original series, like Mud, for example. It's the reason um, people like go to work. <laughs> so that they can have money to go drinking. <laughs> um, but if you didn't need money to go drinking, <laughs> then... <laughs> Like, again, and, like, the original Star Trek, there's a sense, like, Kirk has a job. Like, he's employed. He, he does see it. He does treat it as a job. Yeah. And there is a sense of, like, him being, like, all those episodes about computers are about, like, automation in the 60s and the idea that the working class blue-collar man is going to be replaced by automatons. Sorry. Is there a whole class of people in the Star Trek uh, who don't work? I think there there's, like, good people and then there's brigands. <laughs> But there's no um... lazy civilians. <laughs> yeah, there, there are. Um, well, I mean, keep in mind the original, the the Enterprise D was right. supposed to be packed with civilians. That was okay. Gene Roddenberry's big pitch. Was it just going to be a vessel with so many civilians and everyone? I remember people being like, "But what when it, it's going to encounter threats and things that it can't explain?" It's like, no, vessel full of children, full of children. That's what we want. Well, um, they, it's not like they did away with that. No, they didn't. They just downplayed it a bit. Like, it, it's really weird when you're watching, like, the best of both worlds to think that there are, like, four classrooms full of children on that ship. And presumably, like, Keiko the botanist or whatever, who's, like, working in the Arboretum, like, keeping those plants that will, like, get stuck. Well, in that's important, back. I would argue, in, 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 a, in, a, um, in a voyage of exploration to have a botanist on board. Yes. Okay. But, Okay. <laughs> Moth the barber then or whatever you know that sort of stuff like again the sense of i think was it ira bear described as a shopping mall in space or a hotel in space that was like the the kind of the approach they had to the enterprise d and i think like d space nine has a lot of civilians like there are lots of people who just hang out in quark's bar for example yeah um and all this sort of stuff so and i do think lower decks i feel like they're all kind of like traders and stuff that are kind of you know doing um, stuff yeah, yeah. Are there teachers in the schools? Are there, yeah. Jake Sisko's a writer and all that sort of stuff, which feels, yeah. like, feels like he's just using it to bum around. It's like, his dad's like, I want you to go to college. Like, what if I become a writer? And it's like, that's not really I think Jake a job. Sisko is the closest to a useless. Possibly. I really like Jake yeah, Sisko. Yeah, no, but the fact that, like, he's able to kind of, like, do something like, like, um, like that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think isn't that the thing where he stays behind on the station as a Federation reporter and it turns out he, he doesn't actually have a job. He just like thought it would be nice if he could try to be a Federation reporter. Yeah, he and he he um has a, a lift as well. <laughs> <laughs> or is it a DoorDash or something? He has a yeah. pretty great waistcoat. Pretty great waistcoat. But yeah, I mean and again, like I think Lower Deck Lower Decks has a really Lower Decks is the, like the new animated Star Trek show, the comedy show. That there's a interesting recurring gag in that about how much one of the characters who is like the Riker stand-in really fucking hates civilians like he just really doesn't care for like the civilian scientists and the civilian experts and all the people who inevitably like show up in a Star Trek episode I think are... like you're I think you're mistaking me I'm not even talking about civilians I'm oh. talking about like people just... who realize that like <laughs> If I don't work... <laughs> I still get food and yeah, accommodation. Exactly. And and we're, like, surrounded by, you know, replicators and And holodecks. And, and, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, I don't think that that's never really been explored by the franchise. Is 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 it possible that that's a problem uh, that 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 doesn't exist? I I think the Star Trek vision of humanity believes that humanity is inherently fundamentally decent, like it's inherently yeah. humanist, and the idea is that people will make themselves useful. Yeah, that's the thing. Like. In the Star Trek future, you it's don't work. It's not the kind of conservative panic about yeah. like, oh, yeah, no. They, if, they, if you introduce like universal social credit or whatever, or social benefits or whatever, living wage. Universal basic income. Yeah, there it yeah. is, exactly. Uh, that people will stop working. Universal social credits is like the, the, the chi- social credits are the Chinese thing. That's fair. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. fair. Every, yeah, that's, uh, that's fair. Let's not do that. Let, let's, well, I mean, hey, Leningrad, right? Am I right? You would do really well on the social credit system. <laughs> <laughs> I would have a bigger house. Um, but um, all, but like, I, I, I think there is, again, that this is the point where that really becomes part of the franchise. I think we mentioned like the motion picture being the point where Star Trek becomes really positively utopian. But I think it's reinforced here, where it's like, we don't have money in the future. Uh, we know about environmentalism in the future. We cannot fathom the idea that yeah. like people would not want us to take nuclear power. Um, you know, that sort of stuff. It's irrational, yeah. Yeah. Um, paranoid, what's it? Paranoid and, sorry. Primitive. Primitive and paranoid culture, uh, which I find interesting. And again, this is, again, this is where Darren disappears into the wormhole with the giant floating Darren head in it. Is this movie about reckoning with 60s utopianism in the context of Reagan's America? Is this about taking, you know, the time travel of this movie is ostensibly going from the 23rd century back to 1986. Is it thematically about going from 1966 through 1969 forward to 1986? Is it saying the Star Trek franchise is 20 years old? We want to take these values that were in the mainstream popular consciousness in the late 60s. This idea that the future would be better. This idea that environmentalism was something with real yeah. social value. I mean, you, you you can make that argument. There's the whole kind of introduction of Spock as like one of my... Um, From Berkeley. Berkeley. He did, he did too, too much, much LDS. LDS. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, there is... there, And again, the idea of Spock as this psychic, like literally talking with the whales. Dr. Doolittling with the whales. Yeah. Which I love. And again, I, I actually really love the, again, the utopianism of it, where Spock is like, no, we should get like Gracie's consent. We should yeah. acknowledge that these animals are self-aware and that they have a choice to make and that we shouldn't just assume that they are ours to do with what we will. I love that, like just that little attention to detail, just that little plot point that it's like, no, we'll we'll actually engage with the idea that, you know, our values are fundamentally different than that of the world in which we exist now. Was there any confusion, I wonder, with the whale? Did they think for a moment that uh, Spock was trying to, was having his pawn fire? <laughs> Just got very excited. Yeah, yeah. I it's mean, like, what, consent for what? <laughs> don't, don't open with that. Um, no. But like, and again, I, I think you can kind of... To use full mental vocabulary when speaking to it. Like, like how, do, how does that work? I, I wonder, like, in, 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 in a mind meld, are there, are there, are there words or, or, or how is it? I think it's emotions. Iron- ironically enough, given it's, it's Vulcans, I think it's emotions. Like, I think that's the way it seems to be, is that you feel the things. So, like, when Sarek melds with Picard, Picard is left kind of, like, crying in the room sobbing about the guilt and shame that he feels about Spock. 
Like, mm. it's not just a way of imparting information. It's a way of, like, imparting feeling and self. Like, when Tuvok melts... Sorry, this is really nerdy. I love how nerdy we get here. <laughs> when Tuvok melds with Suter, Suter kind of inherits some of Tuvok's calm, and Tuvok kind of gets, like, Suter's psychopathy or the emotions that he can't control inside himself. Right. I've always seen... Again, they're very 60s. Like, Vulcans are elves, basically. They're yeah. tied to 60s counterculture. Spock is a counterculture icon. And the idea that they're tied to psychedelia. Again, the LDS, if you will. Yeah. That was going around the college campuses. The idea of opening your mind, Timothy Leary, all that sort of stuff. I, I've always seen it as more emotional rather than, like, just imparting words or conversational. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like, the franchise, we talked it's about less it. less the kind of analytic, linguistic kind of... Um... Yeah, uh, side of things. And I mean, we talked about it when we talked when we talked about like Star Trek Six. It has always been coded as sexual as well. It's it's been very heavily, particularly after this, it becomes very coded explicitly as sexual as well. So your palm far joke, not completely uh, unreasonable to ask. But I there's yeah, I, I remember t- telling Petrina at the beginning that Savic like um there there there's a question about whether Savic and Spock have a get, baby get it all get it on well i mean there is no question they they do get it on in the yeah. third movie uh, that was something that was deleted from that script that we mentioned the the Crikes and mearson script that was five lines in that movie uh five lines were deleted from the script um and so didn't make it into production it's not explicit no it's it's quite well i mean in the sense that they don't have penetrative sex literally on screen, on screen yes yeah. but we do know that ponfar culminates in in penetrative sex because it's reproductive that's is the it, entire point of does it of, always no, it doesn't always, but the f- when it doesn't, it's exceptional. <laughs> I mean, the implication is that Tuvok screws a hologram, right? Right. And so you can either get it out of your system by mo- moiding, murdering, or you can get it out by boning. And because Star Trek is an American television Murder show... Murder boner. Yeah, because, because Star Trek is an American television show, most of the time they go the murder route. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically that, that was deleted there as well. I do want to... There is something from Mearson and Craig's I just want to talk about because they talk about like what notes they got when they were writing um, the script. And their big one was that like the key thing is to appease Shatner. So we were given two instructions. The first was to keep Eddie Murphy in mind for the guest star and to make sure that the character of Admiral Kirk is the driving force behind every aspect of the story. And here is Mearson gives an example. The approach we were told to take is that Kirk really had to be the one to lead everyone. Not necessarily that he had to have the idea to do something, but it had to appear as if he had the idea. The perfect example in the movie is when Spock goes into the belly of the bird of prey to use the computers and learns the alien probe is emitting the sound of whale songs. It's Kirk who has the idea to go back in time, although Spock is the one who plants the suggestion in Kirk's mind. Kirk verbalizes it, and that's the way it has to be played. We were told that Bill had to be the leader at all times. In that scene, if you're reading it, you say, it's Spock's idea. But on film, Spock's discovery is that as humpback whales is not as important as Kirk's idea of going to get them. And again, Kreik cites another example, which I love, which is visually, the scene between Spock and his father at the end is another example. You kind of ask, why is Kirk standing there listening to this? But Shatner has to be a part of everything, which I kind of love. We mentioned that again at the end of... Yeah, people should be asking... um... (laughs) Where's Kirk? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, so basically that that Savak pregnancy was was heavily implied as well. And again, in terms of like the 60s-ness of it, like 
so much of this movie is about money, which is interesting. Like, repeatedly when they land in 86, mm. the way that this movie tells you it is 1986. And I love that it's not retroactive. It's like specifically 1986. Yeah, you, you could be rich beyond the dreams of avarice. Yes. Uh, well, the, the first conversation. Yeah. The first conversation is two bin men, one of which is talking about an argument he had about paying, was it $60 for a toaster oven? Yeah. Like, that's the example. Why, are, why is the Institute letting the whales go? Because it can't afford to keep feeding them. When Kirk and Spock like need to get to the Cetacean Institute, what's the big hurdle they face? You exact change. change. Yeah. yeah, exact change. He has to sell the... I love that sequence where he sells the glasses. <laughs> um, where it's like, um, those were a gift from Dr. McCoy. And the beauty is, they will be again. Um, but the bit where it's like, I can give you $100 for it. Is that a lot? And, and the, like, <laughs> the shrug response. Like, I like that this is so... He's very, by the way, Shatner is very funny in, yes. in moments like that. He, Shatner's he, very good here. I think. Yeah. He, um, and the Nimoy as well. They're they're very, they're like a a exceptionally comedic. I think mo- mo- most of the kind of um, other crew get a decent amount to do. I think Ahura again doesn't get much, hardly anything really. She yeah. said that they even she goes with Chekhov, but like Chekhov gets the arc. She just gets to beam back. Exactly. Yeah. She's very much kind of um, a sort of a weird kind of like a, a, a lieutenant to check of or something. She's the, le- the the less kind of important of the two. Whereas like even um, Sulu gets the whole thing with the Yui. And, and Sulu had a deleted plot with his grandfather. Sulu was going to meet his grandfather. That would make sense. Because he does go out of his way as saying, I was born here and stuff like that. But they filmed a scene with a little boy who was going to turn out to be his grandfather. It is strange to have kind of um, Sulu be from uh, San Francisco and for, uh, yeah, yeah. For it not to come back in any way, shape or form. Yeah. But even he gets, as you said, he gets the things, the, the Yui, the scenes. I love the scene I where he accidentally turns on the, the wiper, <laughs> which is just a great sorry. Scotty gets a lot too. Yeah, well, again, like they played it, like Doohan is not the strongest actor with all due respect to James Doohan, but he's very good comedically. Yeah. Um, and again, I think DeForest Kelly works really well as a, and as a screen partner. Don't bury yourself in the role. But like, I, again. But he's is, always the third lead anyway. Yeah. 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 And, and again, because this is a very heavy Kirk Spock story, which I think is a smart decision. I think the movie it has would, a really good emotional art. It would be nice if they gave some of kind of, you know, because some of the bone stuff you could kind of give to. Ahura. Yeah, Ahura. Or, yeah. Well, I mean, you could argue. like asking kind of, which is what, what the kind of Abrams uh, movies do quite well is have. Well, that Ahura interrogates. Yeah. yeah, the 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 kind of the 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 Vulcanness of of of, of Spock. Yeah, no, I think like the I again, I like the Abrams movies more than you do. And one of the big innovations of them is to say the Trinity is no longer Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And I love McCoy. It's now Kirk, Spock, and Ahura. Ahura yeah. is basically the third lead of the movie. And I think like not even that. Like here. You could get away with if you drop McCoy into the Kirk and Spock plot, you could put Ahura with Scotty. That would give her more to do. Yeah. Um, and then like you have Kirk, Spock, and McCoy together, and you can bounce the three of them off each other because that works in the show. It does feel a little bit more like, but yeah, Shatner and Nimoy are the two leads and DeForest Kelly isn't. So the central emotional through line of the movie is all Kirk and Spock. Which I think makes sense. I th- like I like the emotional through line of the movie. It, it, 
it does kind of well me up a little bit. The bit when he chooses to like stand with them and tell my mother I feel fine. Like that's a really good dramatic payoff. It is great. Yeah. And like the bit where like again where he's like I I I guessed and it's like you know Kirk just kind of walks off and it's like well what does that mean? He needs, means he has more faith in your guesses than most people's facts. That's a really beautiful moment I think between the the two of them and I think again we we talked about how like weird it is that these are our you know are my weird space friends where like I kind of just have this emotional attachment to these characters so I love watching them interact with one another and I love the payoffs that they have where like it does feel like the two characters have gone through a journey together and they're back you know at a place where they're they they got each other the, yeah. the two of them got each other a platonic love story so to speak I've, I, 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 I suppose you did answer the question about what the movie was about for you in the sense of it being kind of like the 60s visiting the 80s, I guess. Yeah, and again, like, you, well, you have that, and the fact that they're in San Francisco, which is the hub of 60s counterculture. Yeah. Uh, the fact that even things like, say, Nimoy. Nimoy, uh, a couple of years earlier, I think we've mentioned a couple of times in the podcast, Philip Kaufman's, uh, what's it called, Invasion of the Body Snatchers which is about basically this idea. It's another San Francisco movie. It's another San Francisco movie that stars Nimoy. And it's about this idea that you have the the yippie versus yuppie stuff. The idea that you had all these people who were countercultural figures in the 60s sold out and became part of the establishment. You know, money became the most important thing. Overnight, San Francisco kind of lost its soul. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening here as well, where you have this idea of, as you said, like Spock is this kind of like countercultural figure arriving in 1986 and just trying to make sense of it all. Kirk trying to make sense of it all and like just trying to find a way to connect and trying to, again, proving to Taylor, who is this surrogate for normal people, that these values have worth. Yeah. Like Taylor I'm... is in some ways the audience surrogate where she's the one who has to live in this world and she finds Kirk and Spock and Kirk and Spock are like, what we're saying is going to sound completely weird and alien to you because it's so far outside your frame of reference. But trust us, this is a good way of living or this is a good way to be or this is a good idea or a good way to see the world, as crazy as it sounds, you know? Hmm. Um, which maybe I think kind of is, is in some ways like this debate that's happening in America, you know, during the 80s and 90s about the legacy of the 60s. Well, it, it's... I think there's a very pointed kind of, it makes sense as a line in the movie, but also it speaks very much to what the movie is precisely about, is um, uh, when man was killing these creatures, he was destroying his own future. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's kind of like um, he set things in motion where this uh, alien is going to come to the planet and and make it rain but not in like a good way <laughs> um, keep it classy Andrew. <laughs> but um it's saying kind of um man at this time was destroying his own future yeah yeah and this this time happens to be the time that we are living in yeah like in 1986 you're releasing this movie to an audience in 1986 you're not talking about destroying some future in the 24th century you're talking about them destroying kind of any chance that there will be humans in the 24th century yeah which is is i think a, like a really again very star trekky idea and a great way of like arguing for the franchise still having relevance like it, it's a way that tethers the franchise at the moment 
And I do think there is, if I can abstract that idea even further in a very pretentious sort of way, the idea that these are fugitives from television, which I love. Like the idea that like these aren't, they aren't necessarily characters from the future. They're characters from television. Yeah. Like things like the they, swearing. They, they, the, they make reference to uh, George and Gracie. Yeah. Uh, George Burns and Gracie Allen show. Yeah. Which, which, which is, um, and everyone's kind of like, uh, ha ha ha. Yeah. But then you have these actual old TV He's characters. Like coming yeah. out of television into yeah. the real world. Where like, I love the fact that they can't, like they can't swear. Yeah. Like that that's the whole thing is that like they're in movies now. And like I think Pauline Kale in her review uh criticized the movie because she was like I I don't like the way these actors perform. I don't like the way they read lines. It doesn't feel organic. It doesn't feel natural. I'm so de- I think it, it is a fish out of water thing. No, that's it. Yeah. Like K- Kale's review singles out the moment that the two garbage men appear and people start talking like human beings. And it's like that feels like Kale is a very astute critic. There's a reason why Quentin Tarantino's 10th movie will apparently be about Pauline Kale, film critic. Uh, that is actually his 10th movie. Um, but there is a sense in which she's kind of missing the forest for the trees where that feels like it's the point. Like it feels like those characters are the first people who talk naturally because they're the first people who are in the real world. And Kirk and his crew aren't supposed to be from the real world. Welcome through the looking glass. They're these figures from imagination. The fact that, like, when, when you know, she walks, when Taylor walks up to the ship, she crashes against an invisible wall. Literally the well, fourth they, wall. Like, the fact ima- that he watches her through a screen. Sorry. Imagine, imagine you and I in Elizabethan times. Like, if we're transplanted into, like, a Shakespearean play, the difficulty we would have spe- <laughs> speaking kind of um, along those lines. Like, yeah. do, doing the, the, what's it called? Um, Middle English? Not even Middle English. No, no, yeah. There's, let's say like Elizabethan English, yeah. But um, it, and again, that's the big argument at Star Trek performers is that like generally they tend to be theatrical actors. They tend to be actors who can do Shakespeare, or generally the actors who can do Star Trek. Shatner is a Shakespearean actor, for yeah. example. Uh, Stewart is a big example as well. But like, I I think that's very intentional. And again, I love even little touches like the double dumbass on you, <laughs> colorful euphemisms. Um, the hell I do <laughs> like the idea that they don't know how to swear because again they've always existed in a world of broadcast standards and practices it feels very intentional you know and again even things like say Leonard Roseman's score where we mentioned like it was James Horner who did like the Wrath of Khan and it was James Horner who came back and did the search for Spock and this time it's done by Leonard Rosenman who I think had worked with Nimoy before but like Rosenman's score is very very much a tv score and again it comes under criticism from people like say joe kramer who was the composer on like mission impossible rogue nation who says like you know it's stacked with kind of what you would expect from tv scores around the same time you know brass pyramids and woodwind melodies the kind of stuff that you you don't associate with a film score and kind of so gives you this sense of being something from television you're almost just watching on a big screen by accident. And the fact that when they're traveling back in time, that that Greek sculpture stuff doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but kind of feels like they're breaking some sort of barrier. They're kind of breaking on through to the other side, to quote the Doors reference that you mentioned there. But the vibes of something like Aha, where it's like they're kind of crashing through reality or through, again, how in the 80s you represented levels of reality, Tron, you know, sort of I, that yeah. sort of stuff. 
I will say I don't understand how they go forward <laughs> in time. True, the, 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 they just spin the opposite way. It's like same Superman. Process. Yeah, no, <laughs> like it doesn't. It uh, um, it doesn't matter what way you you go around. It's just going to put you further back in time if that's the way these things work. That that's your problem because gravity doesn't work differently left versus when you right. stand upside down. I mean, look, when you flush a toilet in the Southern Hemisphere, Andrew, when you flush a toilet in the Southern Hemisphere. It, it's it, it, because my 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 understanding of the slingshot has always been and people can correct me. I'm never going to know <laughs> but, um, unless you find a secret Twitter account. Yeah. Um, is that they are going close to the speed of light and then they're using the um, gravitational effect to send them over the the edge to the point where they they where it becomes like faster than faster um, than light yeah yeah where it transcends the idea again the, the idea, idea of, of 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 relativity of, of, of time yeah yeah first of all we're probably not meant to think about it that hard no second thing they, is that, they like, really really do need to just <laughs> um uh freeze themselves i was about to say In like antarctica <laughs> That's your solution to the problem. I feel like when you introduce two separate means of time travel into a movie, you unnecessarily complicate this. I feel like that's the that's the point where Paramount go just just have them go the other direction, just have them go the opposite way. I feel I, I, the, 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 what if we just reverse the footage? It doesn't cost as much. <laughs> what if they just like back reverse? We do like a beep sound effect with the bird of prey. I feel like that it is done in. A, sorry, anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Well, it's done in, in um, Army of Darkness. Yeah. Army of Darkness is a great one where he just puts himself asleep for several thousand years. And in one of the endings, he overshoots, I think is the thing. Which that I is really right. Like. Just very quickly, the, the Bird of Prey. I love the Bird of Prey. I love that you can tell that this movie cost like $8 million more than the previous one because it, the Bird of Prey seemingly got completely refurbished on Vulcan. It hovering over the, the whaling um, ship. The whaling ship. With young Stephen Graham. That's not Stephen Graham. <laughs> <laughs> just looks like him. Um, but like, and again, the the fact that, yeah, it, it just, it looks really good. The famous line about this is that this is a movie where nobody fires any weapons. That's not quite true. Uh, the Obviously, the whaling ship fires the harpoon. Yeah. Chekhov tries to fire the phaser, for example. And Kirk, I think, uses it to seal a door at one point. But like, again, it, it is... It's Bizarrely, a, the Marines never <laughs> never fire sorry. their weapons. Yeah, or the Navy. Sorry, never never fire their rifles. I wonder if that was like the DOD note on it. We're like, we can chase the quirky Russian, but he has to get the concussion all on his own. And if I, you want to shoot on the, the, if he fell off the side and landed on the ground, and then they just like riddled him <laughs> with bullets. <laughs> I love the kind of like the fun of it, and again, even the individual jokes, like the the bit with like Scotty. Talking to the computer keyboard. <laughs> How quaint. <laughs> computer. Uh, <laughs> and then he gives in the mouse. Computer. Just use the keyboard. How quaint. Um, but yeah, is there anything you want to talk about with regards to the voyage home that we haven't talked about already? Anything jumping out at you? I think it it it's it's a very uh, sympathetic judicial process. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
like at the end it's like the findings of it is that you're not guilty and furthermore <laughs> you get a cool ship <laughs> yeah 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 we're giving you what you always wanted you're no honest- longer going to be admiral and and like for the, for the Klingon is standing yeah. there, it's like you've forgotten all of what I've said. Are you even going to address the accusations that I've made? I I do I do love the idea of the Klingon. Being all like, is forgiven. I said this would fucking happen. Like the Klingons, like you guys got all up in your high horse, and we're like, no, 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 no. They'll face due justice, and you gave him a ship. You gave him a ship. You punished him with exactly what he wanted. And like Harv Bennett has it's talked about odd this odd verdict. <laughs> and also delivered by the president not by a judiciary apparently starfleet and the federation don't have a There's separation, no separation. Of yeah <laughs> i am the law i think it's this that has him replaced by kurt woodsmith <laughs> <laughs> after that unfortunate decision yeah yeah they don't they, talk about he, it during star trek he 5 he must have been your netanyahu of of, of, <laughs> of, 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 of the of federation, federation presidency yeah, yeah. he did away with like judicial <laughs> of, um, independence yeah um, i think bennett has made the point that like the movie has five endings try to try to, try to, to be clear. <laughs> um but i think like bennett has made the point that this movie has like five endings and i think he said like mayor is like that is like four too many endings. Yeah. Mayor is like you end it when they get back and the whales are in the water. That is when you cut to black and you run the credits. Yeah. And Bennett and it is feels like, like the ending. And then yeah. they go back to like shots of that ending <laughs> later on. Yeah. But I, I feel like it makes the, 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 the moment with kind of like tell my mother that I feel fine. It is, it, it is good because it lays one of my bother is about kind of ending it in the water the fact that spock is like um full grinning (laughs) (laughs) i realized that oh yeah no sorry he's kind of um letting himself experience emotion exactly that 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 is what is happening and it's a it's a it's a um a, a kind of like a wholesome and an edifying kind of um uh well that that that's the thing again. Sorry. I love that I was like, let's wrap up. We're wrapping up. But I'm like, no, let's talk about Spock for a solid 20 minutes. But no, I mean, the thing that I find interesting about the movies and about Spock is on the show, Spock's big fear is I cannot control my humanity. I cannot control my emotions. I am ashamed of this part of me that is human and I must push it down and bury it inside of me. And whenever it comes out, it's awful. So like in the naked time when he when he smashes the computer with his fist, which is still one of my favorite Star Trek images ever, uh, when he talks about how he can't tell his mother that he loves her. Or is it this side of paradise where he becomes, as you said, a stupid space hippie who doesn't want to do any work? <laughs> and it's the worst thing. Like, that's the worst thing ever. Or even say like a mock time where he gets horny and nearly kills Jim and all this sort of stuff. Like in the series, it's like if Spock ever like lost control he must work so hard to maintain control um in yesteryear when he travels back in time and that causes him to revert to primitive vulcans who don't have control of their emotions all that sort of stuff and i like that the movie arc is the opposite well i mean you have some of that in the original series you have the 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 moment where he's so happy that that kirk's alive that jim's alive he grabs him and smiles and hugs him yeah yeah yeah, and fair. then has to kind of he remembers himself. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I think that like I like that the movies are more like no, 
accepting that part of yourself is your journey. Like Spock's big journey. And again, it, it, we mentioned it when we talk about the motion picture, the idea that like at the start of the motion picture, he's told that he will never be purged of emotions. He's not, he will never complete Culinar. There's just some part of him that cannot be cleansed of emotions despite his best efforts. And his arc over these four movies is kind of him coming to terms with that, which I like. It's a really sweet story. Yeah. And his father being like, I am less disappointed with you <laughs> than I once was. <laughs> I am glad that we had this conversation. <laughs> um, but, and again, like the idea that, yeah, that these are t- TV stars dealing with the fact that they're in movies now, which I just like, it's the thing that I love about. We, yeah. <laughs> um, it's like um, when you join Starfleet, I thought it was a foolish decision, but now that you've saved the world, <laughs> my, my opinion is mellowed. <laughs> That's all it took. <laughs> um, it does feel like the point where Spock should be like, you know, I saved the world several times on the TV show, right? Um, but like, I also love the idea. By, by, by the way, there there doesn't feel like much of a great existential threat in this movie. With the probe. No. no. Um, I, I know it probably is, but it doesn't feel that way. No. It, we, don't, uh, we don't have an idea of how long will it take. For the probe to destroy all life on Earth and all that. Yeah, or whether it will. Yeah. It's just like... Kind or of what like, it's like outside this room. Waiting for a response, and I'm going to knock on this door kind of until I, I guess, run out of energy and go back. <laughs> Get bored a bit. Um, well, I mean, again... It, I've gone but... all this way, and I'm going to be very <laughs> persistent. But eventually, my end game isn't kill everything. <laughs> but I, I think... I'm to... just looking to talk to some whales. Have you seen a whale? Have you Everybody... seen a whale? What about this guy? Uh, so I've got I've got three down, six billion to go. Have you seen a whale, buddy? Yeah. Pal? Can I get your attention for a moment? But I do. <laughs> I actually I quite like the idea that the probe isn't malicious. Yeah. That it's it's just again it's it's one of those like features. I don't think it's going to kill all things. But the flip side of that is that I don't think it's aware, or I don't think it cares. I don't think it cares that it like that human beings exist. I think it doesn't see human beings as like life. Because it's not trying to talk to them. It's like, where where, where are the actual smart people? Like, it's like ants, you know? What's the ant has no quarrel with the boot? That sort of thing, you know? Or the boot has no quarrel with the ant, whichever one it is. But I think that, like, I like that. I like the idea that it's so fundamentally alien. Like that line that Spock has where it's it would be typical human arrogance to assume that it's talking to you. Which yeah. is like such a great line and such a great, like, pivot for the whole thing. I also love how quick i know it's a plot necessity i know that it's like reverse engineered from we want a star trek movie where they go back to 1986 oh, immediately they're like yeah <laughs> <Time> warp. <laughs> yeah, yeah? We, we've tried nothing I, and we're all out of ideas it's like let's do that again yeah um nice <laughs> <laughs> which by the way did happen on the tv show they did it i think they did it in tomorrow is yesterday or did they return to tomorrow i think it was tomorrow is yesterday which is the one where they go back to 1969 and accidentally predict the moon landing. Uh, and then they, they, did it, uh, they did it really casually in Assignment Earth, which is one of my favorite things. Because that was the one where, like, Gene Roddenberry's like, so this Star Trek thing's being cancelled, right? But I still got a budget. And with that budget, I could make a preview for another TV show that I could executive produce. So what if, and hear me out here, Kirk and the crew travel back to, like, 1968, and they just bump into a bunch of characters who could maybe carry their own adventure series that could run on uh, NBC? 
What do you think? I think that's a good pitch. <laughs> so like that episode just opens with, so we're using the time warp technology to journey back to 1967 to observe a rocket launch. And it's never mentioned again. So I just kind of like the casualness with which Kirk is like, yeah, so time travel. Let's let's go back in time. Let's see if we can let's see if we can reset everything there. And also, like, is it a bit odd that Starfleet didn't like send anybody to Vulcan? That like Vulcan, which is like a founding member of the Federation, is just like, so uh these fugitive guys, uh, they're gonna they're gonna take their they're gonna come back in their own good time. I think they're giving um, them the option of absconding. Yes. I feel like the Klingon ambassador is, as you say, quite Entirely right. Entirely correct. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like... I, it does feel like when Kirk's like, so we're voted, we're all going back. It does feel like the Federation president's like, no, that is not what you're supposed to do. You have a ship with a cloaking device. By the way, I love... That they stole a ship from Doc Brown and then used it to travel back in time. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is wonderful. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Anything else you want to talk about? And we haven't discussed already. Rick Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything else you want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed already? And jumping out at you. No, I, I suppose there was like. My my wife's takeaways were that they that they have some shirts on them. Um, she was curious about why um, Spock's mum was the same age. And of course, <laughs> that's to do with Vulcans. They 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 don't age as quickly. Like yeah. in the next generation, um, Spock is still kind of alive and well, and so yeah. is Sarek. Whereas presumably his mother has died long ago. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, played um, by the same actor from the TV show, which is quite nice. They bring back the same actor who played her in Journey to Babel. Yeah. Uh, which is great as well. And then the the other thing, this is Darren's going to get on some even nerdier shit she right now. She did say as well that Scotty's accent is terrible, which. Yes, which it is. <laughs> which it is, yeah. <laughs> well, um, James Doohan is Canadian and just decided yeah. to do a Scottish accent, I think in homage to, um, who was the guy who invented the train? The steam engine? Oh, uh, Watts. Okay. Well, yeah. the James Watt? No, 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 not James Watt. Okay, we're uh, going to go to the fact machine and check this. And we're back from the fact machine. It turns out that apparently Doohan decided to base Scotty's accent on that of a Scottish man that he knew during the Second World War. So, okay. uh, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're yeah, we're, we're uh, yeah. We, we, we won't ask any follow-up <laughs> we questions. We will not ask any, any, <laughs> any, any follow-up questions. Um, in terms of just others, like... I, I am super nerdy, so I have read, like, all the comic books and all the novelizations. I love Vonda and McIntyre's novelizations of the Genesis trilogy. They are well worth seeking out if you get a chance to do so. But I particularly love this one, where McIntyre is, like myself, a very nerdy person who thinks a lot about things that she probably shouldn't be thinking about while writing, like, the adaptation of this whirlwind cool adventure about traveling back to 1986 because she opens the novelization with a chapter in which carol marcus receives a letter from james kirk informing her that her son is dead and then kirk goes and has a cool adventure in 1986 which is one of the most whiplash inducing things i have ever encountered in all of my time reading tie-in novels where mcintyre is like i feel like there's a plot hole i feel like the number of people who died on like the grisham and on like regular two haven't been properly dealt with 
So you yeah. know what? We're just going to shoehorn it into the start of this. Like it's it's wild, really. <laughs> that that the the aftermath of uh, the search for Spock is uh, Star Trek sixty Undiscovered Country when Kirk remembers that <laughs> he had a son. Yeah, I mean, again, like we we, sh- we should note that like at the end of the movie when they get command of the Enterprise apparently Bennett wanted to give them the Excelsior but was overruled he, that, that was when they rechristened the ship the Enterprise uh, was because Bennett was like I want them on the Excelsior and everyone's like that was a terrible idea yeah he was the Sulu of the <laughs> of the bunch um, and then the other thing I guess would be to point out the novelization probe which is like one of my favourites it also cigar shaped uh, it, well, it, it, it's 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 the backstory for the probe from this movie. Okay. There's an actual novel that was written explaining the backstory of the probe from this movie. And in my favorite piece of trivia about like 80s Star Trek like novelizations and how that was the Wild West. It was also like softcore lesbian erotica about like a Vulcan woman and a human woman who were like in prison, tortured by Romulans and who totally weren't wink, wink stand ins for Kirk and Spock. Uh, as they hurt and comfort and all that sort of stuff. But I love that it's like the the writer, I think it's Margaret Wander Buonanno, got the brief of, you're writing the backstory for the probe from Star Trek Four, And she's like, more lesbians in prison? It's like, sure, go for it. So we will include that in the show notes. That was a, there was a minor controversy when she actually submitted that manuscript to editors. And it was like cut to ribbons before it was published. But you can read the original text online, um, so we will include that uh, in the show notes. All right, then. Oh, and in terms of other stuff, inappropriate oh, yeah. smoking. Yeah, I mean, the, there's the cigar uh, that's going to kind of smoke the earth. Um, <laughs> there, there's um, they they do box their Italian food, which reminds me, I do like the way that Kirk looks at the alcohol. He's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> No, that synthahol crap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, um, and I don't know about obligatory Robocop references. I feel like we've mentioned Kurt Woodsmith. Um, he doesn't really count in this. I mean, they, there, 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 there are other. Um, we've, we've, we've also mentioned the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. I mean, Spock is in this, and he's also in in Into Darkness with. Uh, Peter Weller, Peter Admiral Weller. Robocop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. um, and, but that—that's very kind of <laughs> tenuous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you could argue that they're both movies from the eighties that have social commentary in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're 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 kind of um, nuclear and environmental uh, panic movies from the late eighties. Yeah, so. yeah, that that works. Yeah. Um, all right, then. And yeah, okay. So what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something. Since we don't have a guest, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Um, in terms of um, San Francisco movies, I recommend The Rock. I think it's just a <laughs> lot of fun. Um, I think Bay's best movie? Uh, I, yeah, but I mean... So San Francisco Bay? Probably my um, favorite. I don't know what other kind of contenders... Would be in my um, the island, uh, maybe. I'm not, I'm not. I don't know if I'm familiar with that. That's the one with uh, Scott Johansson and Ewan McGregor, where they're on the island and it's seemingly post-apocalyptic, but uh, may not be. 
Sean Bean's in it. I no, I don't I've think he dies until so. late. Okay, <laughs> it's very good. I, I yeah. recommend it. It's maybe one of his best movies. It's uh, it, I I like um The Rock. It it's uh, Nicolas Cage and uh, Sean, Connery? Sean Connery. Yeah, who yeah. was spoiler alert meant to be in Star Trek Five. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. why Heaven in Star Trek Five is called Shakari. It's Sean Connery. Ah. I feel like they 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 whiff on like kind of like why don't we put somebody <laughs> like, famous yeah yeah in in into this movie like um, other than we'll <laughs> what 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 is it again it's like we'll 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 what's his uh, what's his face who is mentioned in Bride of Chucky. Sorry, so, this on. is like this person on New oh Year's Christian Eve. Slater, Christian Slater, Christian Slater. Sorry, yes, who yeah. appears in Star Trek Six because I think his mother was casting yeah. director. Like he had to, he had to twist his arm to get in there. The, fran- <laughs> the franchise was like, no, you don't. And he's like, yes, I do. Um, to be fair, I think the the next generation had like Gene Simmons, not Gene Simmons from Kiss, actual Gene Simmons. Yeah, uh, and I think Paul Servino, like fresh off Goodfellas, like he was like, what do I do with my Goodfellas bounce? I want to be Worf's adopted brother. Um, Those aren't big. Kind fair. Of, yeah, yeah. They're they're very kind of um, small, kind of, which is fitting with the. I think probably the people who are used to starring in these Star Trek movies, like the first ten, wouldn't want oh <laughs> there to oh. be any like aside oh. from a villain. Oh, because you bring in a villain and you get uh, to defeat them. You get to defeat them, and they're dead, and they don't come back. So so you 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 get like Ricardo Montalban and then like you 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 have Christopher Plummer and like all of these fantastic kind of which you miss from this by the way yeah. I I I think like sorry going back to the movie but I I think a problem with no great existential threat is I think is it's it's, a, it's kind of a problem that there's no villain no iconic villain in this and I think the the you could maybe do with a space battle. <laughs> like, I like that the movie doesn't have any space battles, and I kind of don't like how much of it is in, say, first contact. But um, it, You feel it, like there's a right amount to be balanced. Yeah. <laughs> One torpedo. One yeah, tor- yeah. What, if, what if they just, what if they shoot the whaling ship? What it's like, blow up the like a little bit of an exciting badass moment, yeah. kind of at some point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I I do not share that. Completely. <laughs> I want to know, like, this is the I, yeah. No, to be to be to be clear, I do think it is good that it doesn't have the, those things. Um, like you mentioned the idea of like the cast not wanting a special celebrity guest star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here is Steve Mearson, who was like one of the first two writers who worked on the Eddie Murphy draft. I know a lot of the cast wasn't happy about Eddie Murphy possibly being cast. I think all of those guys became terrified that Eddie would blow them off the screen. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I, I think, like, there are maybe more delicate ways to phrase that, but yes. But yeah, so, yes, yeah, sorry. So, recommendations. Yes, uh, The Rock, and in terms of um, Star Trek, I'll recommend a, a, a kind of uh, time travel episode, which is, which is all good things. Oh, the the finale of the next generation. Yeah, I think it's such a fitting kind of affectionate ending to the show, and just they did this kind of. I think Stuart is tremendous. Like the and the the uh, the idea of kind of uh, Picard going through dementia and the 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 pathos that that um that he gives us and the love that his crew kind of have 
um, in his for, older state for him yeah, yeah, in his yeah. Older, like the, the fact that they go as far as they do for him yeah despite the fact that by any metric the man is losing his mind yeah um like again that is a we will we are inevitably going to talk about generations i don't think we're going to be coy we are probably going to talk about probably, generations at some yeah. point but like that is something to talk about with generations where that was written by the same writers as generations yeah and they spent months working on generations and they were like fuck we got to write the finale and well, they wrote I, that in like the space of a week and a half. I feel I feel like it is um it's it's a perfect kind of a link between the end of the next generation and 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 and, and, and those the film movies. franchise. It, it dovetails beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's an ending that is kind of it's it's both an ending and not an ending, which is what makes it perfect, where like the end is kind of the adventure continues, but it's also like and by the way, there will be a real ending. Yeah. Which is it's kind of this incredible knot to, to thread. Uh, in terms of recommendations for myself, very, very briefly, uh, because this movie is set in the 80s and involves time travel, I'm going to talk about something from the 80s that has been brought into the present. David Cronenberg's 1988 movie Dead Ringers, which is fantastic and well worth a watch, and available on just about any streaming service you can find or any premium video on demand service you can find. That is getting an update on Amazon Prime. Uh, from writer Alice Birch, who has worked on, like, she worked on Normal People. Is it Normal People or Ordinary People? The Sally Rooney thing. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm meant to know all about Normal People. Because you did go to Trinity and we are from Sligo. Yeah. So it, it's, like, so perfectly in our wheelhouse. Um, and, and it I involves... I suppose you too, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I am. <laughs> I, I hold myself to that standard. Um, and, I mean, obviously involves copious amounts of sex as well. But... She also worked as this is the, a normal amount of sex. I like like the the <laughs> I, I, like, the the surprise that like boomer parents have that their millennial kids like are having sex is like <laughs> it's like a denial that they anyway. Sorry, um, that will dovetail neatly into my second recommendation. <laughs> I'm gonna leave you hanging on what that might be. But no, and that, that is obviously getting an adaptation on Amazon Prime. It's written by Alice Birch, who wrote that miniseries, that Sally Rooney miniseries. She also worked as story editor on the second season of Succession, so it's very similar to that. It stars Rachel Weiss. The only thing better than Rachel Weiss is two Rachel Weiss. You might say that they are some twin Weisses. Uh, it is a story of two twin um, osteotricians who are basically trying to revolutionize the way in which women give birth. Um, it is dark, twisted funny cynical beautiful to look at at times um and well worth checking out it's only six episodes long uh, i've seen all six i think they're out next friday so so put that in your calendar uh, in terms of things that have time traveled from the 80s uh, also i was watching it and i was like the teaser i was like i don't know if i like this show and then the opening credits play over sweet dreams by the arithmics and i'm like i think this is a five-star show and then the other thing i'd recommend dovetailing neatly into that observation that andrew made there uh, we were talking about, Andrew was talking about how you have normal amounts of sex. Uh, Darren's wondering how he's going to finish this sentence. The podcast, you must remember this, which is a history of Hollywood, is doing a season on erotic 90s. Uh, that Karina, that's Karina Longworth's history of Hollywood. She's looking at the erotic thriller and particularly the idea of sex as depicted on screen in Hollywood movies. That is well, well worth a listen. Um, she completed her erotic 80s, which covered the erotic thrillers of the 80s. She's moving into the 90s. She's going to be talking about things like, obviously, Fatal Attraction, all that sort of stuff. Uh, basic uh, Instinct. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. 
a podcast recommendation that Andrew might actually enjoy from me, which I'm very proud of. <laughs> um, so check that out. It is it is one of the best film podcasts out there. It's one of the subjects that is really interesting to talk about right now. Uh, give it a listen. All right. So we are going away for two weeks. I am currently in Australia. So in two weeks, we'll be back. And one of two things will have happened. Either I will have managed to convene the podcast. I will have managed. I will manage to convene even the podcasting high table and myself and Andrew and possibly some guests will have arranged to discuss John Wick chapter four, a full month after it came out and has disappeared from public conversation, but possibly just in time for the video release. Or Andrew will have finished editing our podcast episode (laughs) on Joan of Arc uh, and we will release that, which will have uh, two fantastic guests on there. Uh, We have the fantastic Max Tolan and the amazing Phil Bagnall. Uh, joining us for the discussion of the classic of silent cinema, Joan of Arc. So one of those two things is going to happen in a fortnight. Take care, guys. Bye.